Now, Uncommon Sense with Leland Conway on 630 KHOW, Denver's talk station. All right, 6.30 K, How Denver, Sox Station. I am Leland Conway. we got a lot to get to this hour. Uh, James Rosen, former Fox News White House correspondent, is going to join us. He was um, spied on by the Obama administration pretty in-depth. They tried to prosecute him because he wouldn't release his sources. He was getting a little too close to the truth. Uh, he's now got a book out about um, Antonin Scalia. It's called Scalia, Rise to Greatness. So we'll talk to him about that in just a few minutes and we'll talk to him about the state of journalism today in general got this story here uh by the way you can text the show directly five seven seven three nine five seven seven three nine text leland to five seven seven three nine um i got this story here today that uh scientists claim that they can read your mind with 80 percent accuracy which is about 79% percentage points more accurate than I can read my wife's mind. Uh, researchers from Osaka University have devised a way to use artificial intelligence to create imagery based on brain activity. No worries, nothing to see here. And the lab boys claim that the AI recreated these images with incredible accuracy. The new AI-powered algorithm reconstructed around 1,000 images, including a teddy bear and an airplane, from these brain scans with 80% accuracy. So, do you think we could use this with our wives? Like, when we, this technology, when it comes out, that, because how many times has your wife been like, well, how come you didn't do that? And I'll be like, well, you didn't tell me to do that. Well, I told you, and it was like, actually, you were supposed to read her mind. I think, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, because I think we need to come back to this. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. So, Okay. All right. So uh, we will get to that in just a second. All right. We have our guest on the line. I'm actually super excited um, to talk to James Rosen. Again, an American author, an American journalist. Uh, at one time was the White House correspondent for Fox News. And he's got a book called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Welcome to the program, James. How are you? I'm great, thank you, and uh, grateful to be with you. And our, our listeners can see me all the time. I'm the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, and they can also follow me on Twitter, at James Rosen TV. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Uh, and thanks for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Um, That's my honor. Thank you. Yeah, and I've followed you for quite a while because of what you went through in the Obama administration. I mean, they tried to prosecute you. They spied on you. Um, they dug deep. They follow, followed you around. Um when, and I want to definitely talk about this book in just a minute, but I kind of want to start there because we spent the last 45 minutes talking about the state of journalism and how it is wrapped up in this sort of weird um, amalgamation of government, private sector, and trying to silence people. At that time when you were going through that, there was still some semblance of journalism where you know other journalists were kind of fighting for you in that situation. What do you think of the situation now? Well, Leland, first again, great to be with you. Uh, the situation you referred to when it was disclosed that uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, had uh, secured a secret search warrant application signed by a federal judge to rummage through my emails and about 20 phone lines associated with my work for Fox News at that time, uh, including my parents' home phone records, 
Uh, all of that was first disclosed years after it occurred uh, in a Washington Post article that hit the presses, so to speak, uh, coming up 10 years ago in May of 2013. Um, it was uh, an extraordinary experience, um, and you're quite correct that a number of mainstream media uh, and figures who are, inhabit that orbit, such as Floyd Abrams, who was the attorney of record for the New York Times during the Pentagon Papers litigation, did stand up for Fox News and for me at that time. And the whole episode, Leland, made me briefly outtrend my fellow celebrities, Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. On <laughs> That's a great claim to fame. How did you discover first that the administration was watching you a little too closely for how they should be paying attention to journalists? I knew that there was an FBI national security leak investigation that had opened up into my work at the time, reporting on various aspects of North Korea's nuclear weapons program and also its succession plan that resulted in Kim Jong-un succeeding uh, his father. Um, I didn't learn until the rest of the country through that Washington Post article on May 20, 2013, uh, about the novel designation of me uh, in that, that uh, secret FBI search warrant that was approved by a federal judge in which I was described uh, as a, uh, a co-conspirator hmm. with my alleged wow. source as a, in a violation of the Espionage Act. No reporter had ever before been branded a co-conspirator, a criminal co-conspirator, let alone in a violation of the Espionage Act, for simply doing his job. And at the time, even President Obama gave a speech at National Defense University here in Washington devoted to counterterrorism subjects in which he took time to address obliquely uh, this extraordinary legal assertion about me, and he pronounced himself troubled at the idea of working journalists being criminalized for doing their jobs. Right. Um, not even Neil Sheehan, who was the New York Times reporter who published the 7,000 pages of, the, of classified material that comprised the Pentagon Papers back in 1971, was thusly described by the Nixon administration. So it was the first time in American history that a working reporter uh, had been branded a criminal co-conspirator for doing his job. Wow. Ultimately, reforms were enacted at the Department of Justice. Uh, J uh, Attorney General Holder acknowledged uh, authorship over this extraordinary legal claim in that document and later acknowledged it as the biggest regret of his tenure. That's fascinating. We're talking with James Rosen, uh, Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax. Um, as you survey the world of journalism and the stuff that's coming out now about the FBI and Department of Justice, um, has how have things changed, do you think, in terms of that? In terms of having an attorney general who said, man, I really regret doing that, versus now when it's almost like out in the open. They're not even sneaking anymore. Well, Attorney General Holder's expression of regret was somewhat lame and belated to begin with. <laughs> um, it is forgotten uh, that uh, he testified before the House uh, under oath uh, five days before that Washington Post headline uh, disclosing the treatment of me uh, uh, first surfaced. And he stated, I'm paraphrasing Leland, but pretty closely, uh, what he told uh, lawmakers on that day in his sworn testimony. He said in terms of the potential prosecution of a member of the news media for the unauthorized disclosure of classified information, that's not something I've ever heard of, been yeah. involved in or would think would be wise policy. Right. And, of course, it later, very swiftly after the revelations of five days later in the Washington Post about the whole FBI investigation of me and the declaration, the designation of me as a criminal co-conspirator, 
uh, it very quickly transpired that Attorney General Holder had personally approved this uh, this novel legal claim. Uh, and so it was something he had been involved in, and it was something he had heard of. Uh, and ultimately, the majority staff of the House Judiciary Committee at the time produced a final report stating that they believed that uh, Attorney General Holder's uh, testimony on that occasion had been false and misleading. Hmm. Uh, in terms of surveying the current situation, again, bearing in mind that it, almost four years elapsed before I even became aware of the surveillance, the extent of the surveillance effort against me, Wow! Um, it, I should say that it's hard to ass- assess just yet um, how this administration is doing in this kind of area because it may well be that the, the, the facts of the matter are being withheld from us in a similar fashion at the present moment. We do know that President Biden has uh, severely limited press access to himself, both in the terms of the full-scale news conferences he conducts and the sit-down interviews he conducts. Right. Uh, and that's uh, certainly a matter of his staffing, but a choice and a, 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 a decision of his for which voters will have to decide whether or not, among other issues, they want to hold him accountable. Right. I mean, what you're saying is, <laughs> if I may read that out, is that this could be worse than what we are even seeing right now. Well, let's let's uh, invoke the uh, wise words of the late Don Rumsfeld, who famously said, "There are things we know we know, <laughs> there are things we don't know that we don't know." Right. And this may fall into that latter category. Right. Right. Fascinating. Um, Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax, James Rosen, author of a new book about Antonin Scalia, a fiery former fiery justice of the Supreme Court, passed away suddenly and surprisingly back on February 13th of 2016. Um, He was one of those justices who held dear the intent of the Constitution, the intent of a free people exercising its right to be in charge of its own government. Um, Tell me about this project and how big of a project it has been for you and and what does it constitute in terms of a legacy you want to leave? Well, again, thanks, Leland. The book is called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It comes out this week. Uh, it is already out. Uh, you can order it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, wherever fine books are sold. Um, this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, tells the story of Antonin Scalia's first 50 years of life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. So I hope to rejoin you in two and a half years for volume yeah. two of the yeah. final volume of this biography. <laughs> That'd be awesome. will cover the justice's Supreme Court tenure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this, what I discovered is that there are two existing biographies of Justice Scalia, both of which were published in his lifetime, one of which he cooperated with, the other not at all. And they both turned out pretty much the same way, which is to say that they demonstrated fairly open contempt for Justice Scalia's legacy, his jurisprudence, his philosophy, his conduct. Uh, So this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, available now, is the first biography of Justice Scalia published since his death. It it, it makes use of an enormous wealth of documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous biographers. And I say that it is the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it is the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia. This book helps you understand how he got to the Supreme Court, the deep wellsprings of his Catholic faith, uh, the influence of his parents, an Italian immigrant, who came here not speaking any English in 1920 and made himself into a renowned uh, professor of Romance languages, and his mother, herself the daughter of Italian immigrants who became a school teacher. And from these influences of the liturgy of the Catholic faith, uh, the, uh, the influences of his father, 
who had a lifelong mistrust of translation and interpretation of languages as a, as a means by which sometimes the original meaning of a text can be distorted. All of this influenced Antonin Scalia deeply. Uh, in terms of the, the surprises and revelations in this uh, really the first comprehensive biography of Antonin Scalia. Uh, for example, he conducted a secret oral history of his life, looking back on his whole life, in his chambers at the Supreme Court in 1992, seven years into his term, uh, which had, was not unsealed until 2018. And so this is the first biography to make use of that. We have his FBI files. We have the, the uh, internal letters, handwritten notes, correspondence, uh, draft opinions that flew back and forth privately. Again, never seen until now, between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia when they first got to know each other and their famous friendship started to blossom uh, in the years when they both served on the Court of Appeals, one rung below the Supreme Court. I call these the RBG Nino papers. Mm -hmm. uh, and to read the two of them going back and forth at it over fine points of law with their sparkling wit in which Ruth Bader Ginsburg can be seen needling her friend Nino, <laughs> challenging him, uh, provoking, prodding him, on different points of law involving the First Amendment and what have you. And Scalia, for his part, can be seen letting his hair down in a really unusual way with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, apologizing at one point for a late opinion and calling himself sloth that I am, uh, <laughs> acknowledging error to her in writing, very rare indeed. Uh, so this, this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, really has previously unpublished writings from every phase of Scalia's career, but perhaps the one that will draw the most interest uh, is the uh, is the set of records which I found at the Library of Congress, uh, all previously unpublished, showing the birth and blossoming of the RBG Scalia relationship. That's that to me is fascinating because we've lost that in society today. That ability to have collegiality despite our differences politically, mm -hmm. and you couldn't get two people more far apart on the political spectrum than Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia, and yet. They, they were famous for that friendship, that tight bond and that back and forth and that intellectual play that seems to be missing from, from our dialogue today. You're absolutely right. Uh, there has been a kind of a slow but noticeable death of what William F. Buckley Jr., who also entertained such friendships, used to call the trans-ideological friendship. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no such figures playing the roles of Ginsburg and Scalia today which is why I think um, the, the hunger for that kind of civility of example uh, will be will make the, the, the RBG email papers that I published for the first time and really rise to greatness of such, uh, such interest to the public. Uh, it's important to remember one fundamental fact about their friendship, which uh, often gets overlooked, and that is that the friendship began at work. It mm. was born not of operas, or of trips to India and riding of elephants together, or New Year's Eve celebrations together. It was born of the shared work, which they both took very seriously from their disparate jurisprudential philosophies, uh, that they shared together. Uh, and it was the law that drew them together. Hmm. Uh, but even with, beyond the, the, the sector of the law, it was work itself that provided the space for this incredible friendship. That's that's awesome, man. I'm a I'm a biography fiend. I love these things. I, I've got biographers from a lot of the great world leaders. I'm fascinated. I cannot wait to get my hands on this book because I also admired Antonin Scalia and I also admired Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, in a lot of ways. Didn't agree with her on a lot of things, but I admired her. 
And I can't, I can't wait to read this. Listen, again, it's been great talking to you, um, James. I hope you will come on again and talk more about Absolutely. it and other things. Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax. It's been an honor talking to you and uh, looking forward to getting that book. Again, the book is available, you said, on Amazon, pretty much anywhere books will be sold, correct? You got it, correct. Awesome. All right, great talking to you. Have a great day, sir. Leland, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Um, wow, that's pretty cool. I that Antonin Scalia really deeply interests me, and to his point about the friendships, um, I, I've always been drawn to biographies of people that had these sort of weird contradictions in their in their lives and personalities, and that's that's one. Like when you think about having a deep friendship with someone that's completely the opposite, and then but. Again, it's missing from today's society. We don't have it. One thing that was interesting about, I've wanted to talk to James for a long time. One thing that was interesting about him is he never comes out of reporter mode. <laughs> that's a, that is a consummate journalist, right? I, I'm, one of the things that I'm thinking about is like, this guy was literally abused by the U.S. government in, in, in all the ways we're warning about with Twitter, with Twittergate, right? And when I asked him about it, he was honest and truthful about it and interesting. It was interesting but he reported it as a third party story like as if like if i if you found out tomorrow be large that that white van with the comcast written on it across the street from your house was actually an fbi surveillance van and they were snooping on everything you did for no reason just because you said something on the radio they disagreed with could you be as composed as that <laughs> no way that's pretty interesting. Anyway, can't wait to read the book. It'll be it'll be very interesting. Antonin Scalia, Rise to Greatness by uh, James Rosen, former chief White House correspondent at Fox and now with Newsmax. Interesting stuff. All right, when we continue, uh, we got to talk about being able to read your mind with 80% accuracy. I think us husbands could use that in the home. And also President Biden's terrible, terrible proposal on budget would cost you more than we can really quantify. It would wreck the economy. We'll talk about that next. 630 K How, Denver's Talk Station. And now, back to more Uncommon Sense with Leland Conway on 630 K How, Denver's Talk Station. So it's uh, yesterday. Was it yesterday or the day before? Either yesterday or the day before was International Women's Day. And this is International Women's History Month or whatever. And um, what's funny is I, I like all the disparate messaging, right? Like Hillary Clinton said yesterday that uh, climate change mostly affects women. And I, I don't know about you, but I thought International Women's Day was supposed to be a day where we celebrate the strong and powerful woman. I mean, to, to that point, I posted a picture of my gorgeous wife and I tweeted it and I said, today is International Women's Day. The woman in my life is my walk, my rock. She's everything to me. I couldn't live without her. Thank God for strong, powerful, world-changing women. It's interesting that the supposed leader of the movement for, you know, the rise of feminism and the first female president, Hillary Clinton, almost there twice. Um, she's out there saying that women are so weak, so poor. It's International Women's History Month. And all the little flowers are being destroyed by the climate change caused by the men's in their trucks. And by the way, the uh, whatever it is, Women's Courage Award or whatever the House awarded. Yeah, anyway, I don't even get into that. It's a mess. Uh, <laughs> I just, 
I, I'm, I'm blown away by that. I'm like, I, I remember when I was a kid, like it's kind of the tail end of the initial feminist movement, which I was always cool with because I was raised to believe that men and women are equal in value, different, very different, biologically different. It's what makes us click, but equal in value and that uh, you go out, you do the same job cool everybody wins like just not being because i was raised in a merit-based household right my entire household was merit-based didn't matter i got three sisters i was the only boy so my dad and i were outnumbered four to two i mean we weren't gonna we we weren't gonna spout off too much you know what i'm saying because we get our butts kicked so i i was raised that um you know men and women are equal and celebrate it awesome and Excited when women get that achievement that they couldn't get 50 years ago. That's awesome. Aren't we supposed to be celebrating that? Like the women who made history instead of like whining like, oh my God, it's Women's History Month and women are just downtrodden by climate change. Like what? What happened to the strong, powerful, ass-kicking Amazon woman? Like what happened to that? Where did that go? Because now it's just everybody's a victim. I don't know. Kel Kel, you're a woman. Does that get sickening to you? I mean... You're a strong, powerful woman. Does that, you get tired of that? I do. I mean, it just, yes. it, it feels like it's, it, to me, it's patronizing. It is. Right? Well, the other thing is that now that they believe that men can become women. Well, that's what I was going to say. The Courage Award was awarded to a, a woman who is a, who was born a biological male. And then you also had the Hershey Bar. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That came out that. Yeah. with a trans woman on I just, it. I just want a candy bar. I mean, I don't really care about all that stuff on my candy you know, bar. I, I don't agree. need politics on my candy bar. Can I just have chocolate minus the politics? Uh, yes, <laughs> that would be lovely. That would and be I, honestly, God, I don't care how people identify. I'm just saying I just I feel this weird shift in feminism that doesn't even seem to be about women's issues anymore. And it's I, my wife gets really frustrated with this, right, because she's. She's got this like really defiant approach to things in a good way. I mean that in a good way. She's a strong woman and like she's you tell her she can't do something, she's going to punch you in the face, okay? And I respect that about her. And it's like she when she sees today's modern feminism, she just shakes her head. She's like, "Why are there so many people essentially saying that women are too weak?" You know, it's it's everything is is the man's fault. Everyone is someone else's fault. She's like, I can do this my own self. Well, this is the new thing, because remember, you were coming, you know, uh, it was toxic masculinity, you know, so men were, you know, really, really poor and bad and, you know, bad men, bad men. But now it's all shifted to women. Well, uh, like yeah, but I didn't basically erasing women right out like Title Nine. Yeah. does not even exist anymore. Not really. Not really. I remember when Pat, um, what was her name? Was it uh, ah, the f- legendary coach at Tennessee? Oh, um, Pat. Oh, oh come on. How can I not? I, how can I not even think about this? He's like one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time, period. Man or man or woman, it doesn't matter. One of the greatest coaches, basketball coaches of all time. But I remember she got really, really mad because... The men's locker room, I think, was like three. It was some. I heard this story because I went to the Big Orange broadcast camp like years and years ago, and they told us this story. It was like the men's locker room for the men's Tennessee basketball team was like three or four square feet bigger. Pat Summit. Pat Summit. That's it. I knew it was Pat something. Um, and she made them like reconstruct it 
right? Because she wanted the equality. And it was fine, man. I respect that, right? She was like, I'm going to fight for my girls and we're going to have the same thing, right? That's fine. Totally respect that. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually grow up in the age of the toxic masculinity thing. It was just, it was, it, I, I didn't, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is radical feminism. Something happened in the last five, six years that changed it from we're fighting for an equal opportunity to we're fighting to destroy all males because they're all bad. Right. Well, now it's women that are getting destroyed because well, they're being erased. It being erased. Yes. yes. It, 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 they face now that inside of their own. It's wild. I, I don't know. But I just thought that was funny that Hillary's like, women are the victims of climate change more than anybody else. And I'm like, what are you saying? Are you saying you can't hack the heat? Is that what you're saying? Because it's what it sounds like you're saying. I mean, I don't I'm, I thought we were supposed to be, you know, I mean, one of the young leaders was talking to me about climate mental health. I said, what? tell me what's going on with your peers, climate mental health. And she talked. I said, I think I understand that, but unpack it for me. And she talked about how her peers are thinking about it. One example is, you know, whether when they're ready, could they start a family? God, what could you, the, the incessant whining, it's gone, uh, uh, and she said, I don't know if I can start a family. This is Vice President Kamala Harris, first female Vice President of the United States, apparently can't hack climate change. Worried about what that would mean, and the stress of it. They were talking about it in terms of their peers trying to figure out, you know, they're going to have to get a job and they're going to have to make a living, but what can they do and how can they adapt the education that they're having now to their activism? What? I mean, one of the young leaders was talking to me about climate mental health. (laughs) If, okay, if there is such a thing as climate mental health, meaning people are... I can't remember the source on this. I need to go find it. I've got to find this. It was about 10 years ago. I was not too long into doing talk radio at the time. And I came across this story. It was the greatest racket I've ever seen in my life. And I remember thinking, damn it. I wish I'd have thought of that. So it was this psychologist in San Francisco. And they were offering up ecotherapy and it was like $115 an hour you could go in and you could confess your eco sins to the therapist like I don't drive an electric car I use too many plastic bags with my groceries Um, I had four kids so I created a lot of carbon footprint and you just confess it and at the end of that for the $115, you get to unload all of your eco guilt. And then they give you this thing, and he called it an eco rock. And what he told his patients, this is the greatest racket I've ever seen in my life, I swear to God. What he told his patients was, when you feel guilty for the sins you've committed against the climate, keep your eco rock in your pocket. And reach in your pocket and rub your eco rock and release your sins to the eco rock. 
and he charged them 150 and he was the story i can't i've got to go find the source line he was making bank selling eco an hour on the couch and a free eco rock and i just imagine all these dumbass like subaru driving lefties walking around worried anxiety gripping them <sighs> I double bagged my milk at the grocery store. <laughs> my carbon footprint's over the limit. Rub that equal rock. <sighs> Thank you, Mother Gaia. Anyway, I, to me, that's that is that what she's talking about? To the extent that mental health with regards to the climate is a thing, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? Who's driving the hysteria? while also being hypocritical. Kamala Harris came all the way to Denver to tell us that she was going to go all the way to Africa to talk about climate change, both trips on carbon-spewing jets. Hello? Somebody needs to take their eco-rock with them. Am I missing the point? All right, I didn't get into Biden's budget. Actually, I'm going to analyze it a little bit tomorrow as we're talking about all the taxes and stuff that are going to have to come with this. I'll just tell you this one thing about Biden's budget. It's going to crash the economy. They're going to do a 25% wealth tax if he gets his way. And that means we're not talking about like if you make a million dollars, they're going to take 250,000 of it. No, no, that, that means let's say you have an investment in um, a property that you bought for $200,000 and it's currently worth, according to assayers or whatever, a million dollars. So you have 800,000 in income, according to them. You haven't cashed it out. And tomorrow it could be worth 300,000 if the market crashes. You're just keeping... You're just keeping the asset. You're not selling it. They want to tax you based as if that was income, even though it's not been realized. This will crash the economy because investors, you can only kick investors off to the curb so many times before they quit, pack their bags, and go home. And when that happens, good luck building an economy from the bottom up with nobody to invest, nobody to innovate, and nobody to risk. There might be a lot of hardworking people, but if you don't have the risk takers, the innovators, and the investors, you got nothing, man. And that's what this entire budget is built on. So we'll get into that. But can they predict your mind and your thoughts with 80% accuracy? I need this in my marriage, like yesterday. That's next. 630 K How, Denver's Talk Station. <laughs> Couldn't agree with my buddy. The curmudgeon in the morning, Michael Brown, more. Fouch should be in jail. That should be a good show tomorrow. Check it out. 6 to 10, right here on 630 KHOW. All right, so here's the big story. Scientists claim that they can read your mind with 80% accuracy. Researchers at Osaka University have devised a way to use artificial intelligence to create imagery based on brain activity. Basically, the subject just looks at an image, and the resulting brain waves are interpreted by the AI. And the lab boys claim that the AI recreated these images with incredible accuracy. So the new AI-powered algorithm reconstructed around 1,000 images, including a teddy bear and an airplane, from these brain scans with 80% accuracy. According to Yu uh, Takagi, who led the research, the algorithm pulls information from parts of the brain involved in image perception, such as the occipital and temporal lobes. The AI starts generating the images as noise, similar to television static, which is then replaced with distinguishable features the algorithm sees in the activity by referring to the pictures it was trained on in finding a match. 
We demonstrate that our simple framework can reconstruct high-resolution images from brain activity with high semantic fidelity, the researchers say, according to the Daily Mail. Okay, question though. Are they really reading your mind if they're just translating what you're looking at? Because you're just... If I perceive, I'm looking at B large right now. Like I'm looking across the studio at B large and Kelkel. I perceive them. I'm not necessarily thinking about them. I just happen to see them. I'm aware of their presence. That doesn't mean that I'm thinking about them. Simply that I'm aware they're there. I'm aware that Kelkel just took a big drink of whiskey. Um, I'm not aware of which whiskey. I'm not aware of how long she's been drinking the whiskey while having to sit and listen to my show. I'm unaware of any of those other things about Kel-Kel other than that she just took a big drink of the whiskey. Okay? But here's what I'm thinking. Be large. When this gets built, how much can we use this? Because I, I got to know what she's thinking. I got to know what the wife is thinking. When we're sitting there, I'm like, what are you thinking about? Nothing. You okay? I'm fine. What the hell does that mean? Fine. Everything's fine. I know that fine doesn't mean fine, but I don't know specifically what kind of not fine it means in any given moment. That's what I need. I need to know what's transpiring in the synapses of her brain when she says, I'm fine, as opposed to, I'm fine, as opposed to, right? It's like whatever the last <clears throat> five things wrong you did is what she's thinking that's what about. she's thinking about but i'm like i don't know because there was at least 20 that i did and i don't know which five she's thinking about because yes she is capable of thinking see that's why i don't think they did this on women's brains because women are capable of thinking of six different things at one time guys impossible one thing one thing and one thing only 90 percent of the day <laughs> that's it and i mean i'm surprised that like the image well never mind anyway the point is Women are capable of thinking of like six things at a time. How's this AI going to, how's it going to read that mind? But when it does, dude, you got, uh, what women want the movie with Mel. G that was a hilarious movie. You've got that. If we could make this technology work, I can't wait to find out how women are going to stop us from because clearly that's gotta be their goal. That has got to be their goal. You don't want to know what we're thinking. Seriously. That's probably true. Actually. Um, yeah, that's probably yes. true. Could you imagine what's for dinner? What about the laundry? Oh, I need to put gas in my car. I can't oh, believe I he said that. that the, I got to pick that up from the grocery store. Through. Yep. Oh no. One of the kids has a doctor's appointment. <laughs> I can't believe he just did that is probably one of the constant thoughts in their minds along with the other five of whatever it is they're thinking about. God bless it. That's it for me. Dan Kaplis is next. I'm Leland Conway. Back with Twisted View tomorrow. Thank you, B-Large. Thank you, Cal Cal. 630K How, Denver's Talk Station.